Hello everyone, you're listening to episode 58 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today's case starts in North Yorkshire in a little village called Ascombe Richard. A senior investigating officer received a phone call about a suspicious suitcase that had been discarded by the side of a little lane. The suitcase had been there for at least two weeks and curiosity finally got the better of one passerby who decided to take a look in it. There were reports that inside the case were possible human remains. Specifically, reports had stated that the passerby had seen an eye and human hair inside the suitcase. Oh, God. The investigating officers made their way to the village and discussed what they should do next. They were aware that the suitcase had been there for at least two weeks, and they were concerned that there might be evidence in the surrounding foliage that they didn't want to risk disturbing or contaminating. It was the 18th of November 2001, rain was pouring down relentlessly and it was also pitch black by the time the officers got to the lane. They made the decision to erect a tent over the suitcase and to leave it untouched until the morning when the weather would hopefully be brighter and there would at least be some daylight to see what was going on. The next morning they opened the suitcase and, tragically, the reports had been correct. Inside the suitcase was the body of a female. The suitcase was transported to the nearest mortuary and tests and examinations began. It was noted that the female was, quote, of Asian or Oriental persuasion, end quote, and it was also noted that there was an intense discoloration to her body as well as quite severe decomposition. Yeah, I'm surprised that there like, hadn't been, um, hadn't been like, opened or reported sooner because two weeks is quite a long time, isn't it, for... Um, you'd think there might have been some sort of like smell or something. I think because of where it was, it was, I think most passers-by were in vehicles and that sort of thing. So people had seen it by the side of the road, but not really paid much attention. Uh, But then when someone had been walking their dog, then they, yeah, discovered it. um, And that's when it was reported to the police. But yeah, I think in general, it does seem that it was quite a, um, the lane was like quite out of the way. So not many people had actually kind of gone past it on foot. Right. So in addition to this, there was tape around the girl's face in the style of a balaclava. Only her eyes were visible, but her nose, mouth and forehead were completely taped over. The tape was not normal parcel tape or sellotape. Instead, it was sort of decorative. It was blue and it had a very distinctive pattern on it of men's faces on a blue background. I have tried and tried to find a picture of the tape to put on socials, but I just can't locate a photo of it at the moment. I'll keep searching, and if I do find one, I'll upload it. But it was shown in the critical evidence documentary titled Far From Home, which gives a good sight into this case, and that's linked below if anyone wants to watch it. Other than this distinctive tape, there was no identification on the girl, and therefore the police had no idea who their victim was. They decided to start by trying to identify where the tape had come from, given that it looked very unique. After days of tracking down the origin of the tape, experts found that it was a roll of gift tape that could only be bought at the Tate Galleries. The tape was designed by London-based artists Gilbert and George, and there were only around 2,000 rolls produced. At the time the police were looking into the tape, only between 800 to 850 rolls had been sold. There are only four Tate galleries that this tape could have been bought at, the Tate Modern and the Tate Britain in London, Tate Liverpool and Tate St Ives. 
this discovery widely broadened the police's search pool, given that their victim was found in North Yorkshire. The police put out an appeal in a number of different counties, appealing for witnesses to come forward who might know who their victim was. They described her in the appeals as, quote, Asian or Oriental, aged between 20 and 40 and 4 for 11 inches tall, end quote. Unfortunately, this appeal drew a blank and nobody came forward with any leads. In addition, the police searches on missing person databases for a missing female who matched their victim also drew a blank and there had been no girls of the victim's description reported missing. The investigating teams realised that they needed a better description and a better understanding of who their victim was. They called in the help of forensic anthropologist Professor Sue Black. Professor Sue Black is a renowned anatomist and forensic anthropologist whose work has been recognised nationally and internationally with particular regard to identifying victims of war crimes and mass fatality incidents. Professor Sue Black explains in the Critical Evidence documentary that the identity of someone is broken down into four factors. Sex, height, age and ancestry. In this case, the investigators had the victim's sex and height, so it was Professor Black's job to try and identify her age and her ancestry. She noted that nowadays age and ancestry can be determined by doing an MRI scan of the body. Whilst MRI technology did exist in 2001 at the time of this case, it was not readily available and it was not commonly used, and therefore Professor Black used an X-ray instead. The X-ray showed little flakes of bone that had formed on the victim's sternum, these tiny flakes indicated the calcification and fusion of the sternbrae. Professor Black noted that this process starts usually at the age of 20, and the fusion process is usually completed by the age of 25. When the process is fully finished, the tiny flakes are no longer there or visible on a scan. Therefore, this scan allowed Professor Black to conclude that their victim was likely aged between 20 and 25. Next, she had to identify the victim's ancestry. Professor Black looked at the general morphology of the girl's face and focused on what is known as epicanthic folding of her skin. This essentially meant that she looked into the position of the girl's eyelids, the folds of skin on her upper eyelids, as well as the position of her hairline. Professor Black noted that the epicanthic folds in the girl's eyelids and the positioning of her hairline, as well as the fact that her hair was quote-unquote blue-black colour, pointed to the girl being from Korea or southern China. Professor Black said that this was her biological identity, and she hoped the police would be able to use this to identify her personal identity, i.e. her name. Gosh, so interesting hearing about all these different techniques. Like, there's still so many cases where there's new experts that have kind of new ways of providing the police with insight, and I just always find it so impressive. Yeah, I agree. It is so, so impressive. It really is. So the autopsy results showed that their victim had died somewhere between October 25th and October 28th, 2001, and it was believed that her cause of death was suffocation, although she did have deep abrasions to her head indicating that she had also been struck with a heart object. Unbeknownst to the North Yorkshire police, on the other side of the world in South Korea, a superintendent was undertaking his own investigation into the disappearance of a 21-year-old woman after reports from her family stated that their daughter had gone missing somewhere in Europe. The police back in North Yorkshire were still examining the finer points in the case and they discovered that the suitcase that their victim had been inside had been made in South Korea. 
This, coupled with Professor Black's findings that the girl was from either Korea or southern China, led the police to reach out to the South Korean authorities about their case. After a few weeks of going around the houses to find the right people to talk to, the police in North Yorkshire were put in touch with Superintendent Im in South Korea. He told the police here in England that he was looking for a 21-year-old woman named Miss Jin Hyo Jung. As far as I'm aware, Korean names consist of three names, usually the family name and then two given names. I'm not sure the best way to reference Miss Jin Hyo Jung in this case. I have read that it is disrespectful to use given names and I don't want to offend any cultures and therefore throughout this episode I am going to use her family name and refer to her as Miss Jin. Again, I don't want to cause any offence and from what I've read online this is the correct thing to do, so uh, hopefully it is. So, Superintendent Im told the police here in England that Miss Jin's family had been in touch with the authorities in South Korea to report their daughter missing. Miss Jin had been studying in Lyon in France and she had been coming to the end of her studies when she had told her parents that she was going to travel to London. Her mother had hugely encouraged this. It was unlikely that her daughter would be back in Europe anytime soon and she encouraged her daughter to go and make precious memories. Miss Jin spoke to her parents and said that she made it to London but after that they didn't hear from her again. This sounded like a promising lead to identifying their Jane Doe, and the police here requested that the South Korean authorities send over Miss Jin's fingerprints that they had on their system. The fingerprints of their victim matched that of Miss Jin's, and 45 days after the discovery of her body, she had been identified. This revelation was a step in the right direction for the North Yorkshire police, but it was of course news that devastated the Jin family. They had hoped that she had made it back to France as they had seen on her bank statements that she had withdrawn some money from a bank in Paris on the 1st of November. This fact was concerning to the police because they believed that she had actually been murdered a week or two before this withdrawal. The police also learnt that Miss Jin's brother had been tirelessly trying to get answers prior to this identification and had been putting posts on Facebook pages that were for Korean students living and travelling around England, stating that she was missing. The police here learnt about these posts and spoke to Miss Jin's brother. He explained that it was common practice for Koreans travelling around England to seek out properties where the landlord was also Korean. Within their community, this was well known and everyone helped out each other to find appropriate accommodation for those travelling around Europe. It was a community where people really looked after each other. It's unclear to me how the police obtained this next piece of information, Perhaps it was something they had learned from Miss Jin's brother. But next, the police identified that Miss Jin's last known whereabouts had been at a flat on Eagle Street near Holborn in London. This was, of course, very far away from where Miss Jin's body had been discovered in North Yorkshire. The North Yorkshire investigators travelled to London to continue their investigations there. The protocol reportedly stated that this was now a Met Police investigation, given that Miss Jin had been staying in London and her last known whereabouts were also London. When they arrived in London, they had a meeting with the Serious Crimes Unit and what they were told shocked them all. The Met Police were investigating the disappearance of another South Korean girl who had last been seen in London. Their missing girl was called Song In Hia. Miss Song had come to England in 2000 to study at the University of Surrey. In 2001, she had moved to London for a short while, and it was believed that she had gone missing from the Poplar area of East London sometime during the winter of 2001. 
the Met Police had spoken to her landlord at the Poplar Flat, a Korean man in his early 30s called Kim Kyosu. Mr Kim had built up quite a friendship with Miss Song and had told the police that she had gone on a trip and had not returned. This statement struck a memory in one of the North Yorkshire police officers and he quickly located a document that linked these two cases. Mr Kim had also been the landlord at the flat in Eagle Street that Miss Jin had been living in before her disappearance. Oh my God. The joint team of investigators tried to locate Mr Kim, but it turned out that he had left the country and they had no idea where he was. France. No. (laughs) The investigators uncovered as much information as they could about Mr Kim. They found out that he had come to England in 2000 and had started out as a student. He'd flunked out of university and began making money by subletting a flat in London that he was renting to other students from South Korea. When the police spoke to Miss Jin's family to ask them if they had any information or had heard anything about Mr Kim, they were shocked to learn that Miss Jin's mother had been in regular contact with Mr Kim during the weeks that surrounded her daughter's disappearance. Mr Kim had told her that a man had come to collect Miss Jin from the flat and that this mystery man had taken Miss Jin to the station. The Jin family said that Mr Kim's reaction to their daughter's disappearance had been very natural and he had seemed genuinely shocked. They said they had no reason to doubt the story he had told them. The police went to the flat that Mr Kim had been subletting and moved the furniture around to try and identify if it was a possible crime scene. Behind the desk in one of the bedrooms, the police found bloodstains on the wall and on the floor. They took samples of the carpet, samples of paint from the walls and the blood from the floor and they tested all of them. The blood matched Miss Jin's blood sample, although there was also another blood specimen found within the sample that was not a match for Miss Jin. The paint from the walls also matched paint found in Miss Jin's hair and inside the suitcase that her body had been found in. The police surmised that Miss Jin had been lying on the floor when she had been struck in the head. The police also looked inside the wardrobe at the flat and noted a strong smell of decomposition almost as soon as they'd opened the wardrobe door. There was also a large stain on the floor that also smelt of decomposition. The DNA taken from the decomposing stain matched Miss Jin's DNA and it was concluded that Mr Kim had hidden Miss Jin's body in the wardrobe for several weeks before he decided to move her body out of the flat. Oh God. Other avenues that the police were exploring revealed that Mr Kim had an ex-girlfriend in London. They went to her house and searched for any evidence that might link him to the crimes even further or that would give any indication of where Miss Song was as she was of course still missing. Inside the ex-girlfriend's flat, they found a roll of Gilbert and George gift tape that was partially used. This was the exact same tape that had been used to tape over Miss Jin's face. Mr Kim's ex-girlfriend told the police that the tape was hers and that she'd asked Mr Kim not to use it because it was special. She said that where the police had found it had not been where she had hidden it and she also said that she had not used it and could not understand why a large proportion of it was missing. If you remember, earlier I mentioned that Miss Jin's family had been hopeful that their daughter had made it back to France because her bank records had shown that she had withdrawn 5,300 French francs, around £500, on the 1st of November. Well, the police found out that Mr Kim was in £22,000 worth of debt and they concluded that it was most likely him who had withdrawn this money. 
They put out inquiries about this, and a former tenant of Mr Kim's came forward and said that he had given her the card to withdraw the money when she went to Paris for a trip. The police concluded that this was not only done so that Mr Kim could take the money, but was also done to make it look like Miss Jin was back in France. The investigation had still not revealed the whereabouts of Miss Song, and so the officers decided to also look at her bank records and her money trail. If Mr Kim had stolen money from Miss Jin, perhaps he had done the same with Miss Song's money. They followed the trail of her bank records and noted that one transaction on Miss Song's card had occurred at an ATM that was right next to a travel agent's. They went to this travel agent's and asked if they had any records for a passenger named Song in here or Kim Kayusu. Sure enough, they found records for a ticket to Toronto, Canada in Mr Kim's name that departed on the 13th of December 2001. The police were unsure whether they could extradite Mr Kim because, although they had an enormous amount of evidence, they felt that it might not be enough. They needed to establish how Miss Jin's body had ended up in North Yorkshire. Yeah, I felt kind of the same at this point. I think it seems clear to us that that there is an enormous amount of evidence linking him to um, Miss Jin's murder. But I guess from their perspective, well, I don't guess, I know from their perspective, they still felt they didn't have enough to to file the extradition paperwork and stuff. And I don't know, maybe they thought that it would alert him in some way and maybe he would run somewhere else. I guess they felt they were safe in the knowledge that he was in Canada and they wanted to kind of continue their investigations and get more evidence before they went through that process of extraditing him, perhaps. Yeah, and I totally appreciate that probably missing, like... I guess at this point he's not been physically placed at the crime scene. Um, or like you say, they don't understand like the link between there and Yorkshire. But what I would equally think is that surely he does present quite a big risk to the public because they've got a suspicion that he's already um, killed twice. And actually if he's still in debt and in a new area, like is it not possible that he presents an imminent threat to people in Canada? Absolutely. I I think that there does definitely seem like he does seem like someone who would be a repeat offender. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know. Perhaps they did alert the Canadian authorities as to him and his crimes. I really don't know. I haven't seen anything that kind of suggests that. But yeah, I'd like to think that, that perhaps there was some communication between our authorities and the Canadian authorities about him and the dangers that he might pose to the public. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I suppose so. So back to the case, since the North Yorkshire police knew that Mr. Kim had previously withdrawn money from a cash point to use straight away, they decided to go back through Miss Song's and Miss Jin's bank statements to locate any other ATMs that might have been close to other amenities that he may have used. They located one cash machine that had been used that was located next to a car rental company. They went to the rental company and they found out that Mr. Kim had hired a Peugeot and that he had driven 651 miles in it. They located the hire vehicle and forensically tested it. The fibres in the boot matched Miss Jin's blood and DNA and there was also a distinctive staining pattern in the boot that was identical to the stained pattern that had been found in the wardrobe at Mr. Kim's flat. This led the police to believe that the suitcase with Miss Jin's body inside it was in the boot in the same position that it had been inside the wardrobe. They now felt that they had enough concrete evidence to link Mr Kim to Miss Jin's disappearance and murder, and they worked to push through his extradition. However, they needn't have bothered, as the case finally had a positive break 
when reports came in that Mr Kim had booked a flight from Canada back to England. The police couldn't understand why he would come back to England, but they wondered if it might be to move Miss Song's body. By this point, they assumed that she had tragically been murdered too, as there was still no sign of her whereabouts. The police waited with bated breath as the flight from Canada came into England and Mr Kim got off the flight. Detectives tracked him to an internet cafe in Oxford Street in London and they immediately arrested him and took him into custody. Mr Kim refused to answer any of the police questions and he gave them no information about the murder of Miss Jin or the whereabouts of Miss Song. Well, I'd have thought that they would maybe have followed him. I wonder, that's actually really interesting because I couldn't work out why they didn't go to the airport to arrest him. But in like the interviews and stuff that I've seen, the investigators are all like, it was so intense. You know, we had these, you know, we we tracked him to this Oxford Street internet cafe and our officers were on their way there and they didn't know, you know, if he was going to leave and if he was going to disappear into thin air and all this kind of stuff. And I just thought, well, why didn't you go to the airport? But you saying that actually, that's a really good point. Maybe they didn't go because they were going to follow him to try and what to try and locate Miss Song's body is that is that what you mean yeah yeah that's what I'd imagine but because yeah you must be able to do that they must have the power to um yeah like re- apply for like the appropriate kind of permissions and stuff wasn't they to be able to but again maybe they felt he was too much for like an immediate risk or a flight risk I guess yeah yeah it's, it is a strange one I agree I do think it's strange but obviously they must have had their reasons perhaps they were going to follow him and then they yeah then they realized it was too dangerous yeah perhaps in custody they took DNA from Mr Kim um, and this was tested against the blood sample that they had collected from his flat that had been mixed in with Miss Jin's blood and it matched they now had a concrete link between Miss Jin and Mr Kim They still had no idea where Miss Song was and they questioned and questioned Mr Kim and pushed him to tell them where she was located. Mr Kim wouldn't reveal any information, but luckily the police caught another break in their investigation. In March 2002, a labourer working in the bathroom of the flat in Poplar, the one where Miss Song had been staying, took the panel off the bath and inside it there were hundreds of flies. He knew that the police were interested in that flat and so he called them straight away to report what he had found. Investigators traced the flies to the floor below the bathroom. However, there was no visible room below it. Experts came in and located a sort of sealed-off chamber that was inside the wall. It looked as if it might have been a room at one point or perhaps a storage cupboard or something like that. It had no door handle and wasn't obviously a room from the outside. When the police got into the chamber, they found Miss Song's body hidden underneath an enormous pile of clothes. She was wrapped in a duvet and there was packing tape around her legs and arms, as well as around her face. The use of the tape was almost identical to the MO in Miss Jin's murder. Further links between the two murders were revealed when the clothes piled on top of Miss Song's body tested positive for traces of Miss Jin's DNA. Upstairs in the flat, they also found a masking gun that they believed had been used to reseal the chamber after Mr Kim had put Miss Song's body in there. The investigators brought in a forensic entomologist, so an insect expert, and he was able to identify the age of the flies. This was important, as the age of the flies would indicate how long Miss Song had been deceased and would therefore identify if she had been murdered during the time that Mr Kim was in England. The entomologist identified that the scuttleflies were the oldest flies and they had been there since early December. 
This indicated to the investigators that Miss Song had been murdered somewhere between the 3rd and 8th of December, just over a month after they believed Miss Jin was murdered. Mr Kim was charged with the murders of both Miss Jin and Miss Song, to which he pleaded not guilty. What? Mm. He did put in a guilty plea for the manslaughter of Miss Song, but this plea was rejected by the prosecution, and so he went to trial for both murders. On the 25th of March 2003, after a lengthy trial at the Old Bailey, Mr Kim was found guilty of both counts of murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 23 years and 10 months. The judge commended the investigators for bringing a quote-unquote Rolls-Royce-presented case. The judge then turned to Mr Kim and said, You snuffed out the life of two innocent young girls who trusted you and believed that you were their friend. You have shown no remorse and you have not given any explanation to the families for why you have done what you have done. And that is unfortunately still the case. Mr. Kim has never revealed the motives behind his crimes or why he murdered these two innocent young women. The prosecution alleged that he had possibly killed them for money, given that he needed their PIN numbers to access their account, and it was also questioned whether there was also a sexual motive given that both girls were found in a state of undress, although there was no evidence of a sexual assault. The chilling fact is, he slowly suffocated them, most likely by using the tape that he wrapped around their noses and mouth. The prosecution did say, however, that it was clear that he achieved a sadistic form of pleasure from the killing, given how slow and deliberate both murders were. When speaking to the BBC, Detective Superintendent Ship said, while Mr Kim rented rooms to students studying or sightseeing in England, he also travelled extensively in Europe, Southeast Asia and Canada. He said, quote, He has committed two very similar killings here in a very short period of time, I cannot rule out that he has committed other offences in other countries. I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier, Sal, and I kind of do agree with what the superintendent there is saying, because it does seem like these are two very, very brutal, uh, sadistic killings, and he committed them within a space of the months, and it does make you wonder if there were other victims as well. Like, he definitely seems like someone who, who, who could and would have done that. Yeah, absolutely. Like they say, the kind of MO that he used and also the fact that he didn't really seem at any point jangled. I mean, I know you could argue he was kind of, I don't know, on the run, but actually if he travelled a lot, etc. And then, you know, the fact is he booked a flight back to England. So whereas originally I thought, you know, he was trying to like evade police capture. Actually, it doesn't sound to me like he really was that rattled. And I think that level of confidence after such horrific crimes yeah, would to me kind of suggest that he probably has done this before or at least um, maybe like a slightly lesser crime. You know how we often talk about like escalation and stuff. Mm. Uh, yeah, and the fact he's travelled, I mean, it's the perfect way to to get away with it, isn't it? And if he's tapped into like this network of um, travellers and is able to kind of constantly procure new victims, um, then yeah, I mean, I think he could very well be quite successful um, and especially if, like, as we heard in this case, if the missing persons case is being raised in a completely different country, then, you know, it may well, unless the bodies are recovered, it may well never really come to the attention of UK police, um, particularly if, you know, the, the families aren't even 100% sure in what country 
um, their children are in, you know, if they're traveling around Europe, mm-hmm. etc. It's very difficult, especially if he's like confusing that bank trial, um, the financial trail. So yeah, very heartbreaking case. But I agree, this doesn't sound to me like just two one-off crimes because the money he took, it doesn't almost seem enough, does it? And it's not really clear what it was for. Like I know he was in debt, mm-hmm. but then actually, you know, he was booking flights and cars and stuff, as opposed to, uh, yeah, it's not clear, is it, why he would just do these two and nothing else. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what's so sad about it is, and we've spoken about it before in other cases, we'd give the families a lot more closure if they had almost like a reason or, you know, his thought process behind doing it. But the fact of the matter is, it does seem that, yeah, it was either for a really minimal amount of money and or for for some kind of sadistic pleasure, which is just heartbreaking. Um, And in one interview I saw with Miss Jin's brother, um, he said, as you can imagine, that his family's life has changed forever. He said that after the discovery that the missing and murdered girl in England was his sister, his mother struggled to cope so, so much um, that he had to take over a full-time caring role of her. He said, quote, Now I feel sad about the reality of it all and that I can continue to live like this even though my sister has gone and my memories of her are fading. With regards to the fact that Mr. Kim stole the money from his sister, he said, quote, I am sad about the futility of it. Her cause of death was for the money, such a small amount that has made it seem like her life was worth so little, end quote. And that is just devastating. And in this critical evidence documentary that I watched, um, they did interview him and you can just tell how heartbroken he is about the whole thing. And I just think it's kind of an even bigger, I guess, mystery to them as to why Mr. Kim did this because he's showed no remorse and he's given them no explanation. Um, and I did look into whether or not he would be extradited back to South Korea, but I can't find any information kind of post his sentencing. So he was given um, just over 23 years or almost 24 years, really. So he'll be up for parole very soon within the next three or four years. Um, but I'm not even sure if he's still being held over here or if he has been extradited. I, I couldn't find any information relating to that. Yeah, it's devastatingly sad. And I think you'd almost be quite confident that even if he's eligible for parole um that he wouldn't get it mm. um having committed like such horrific crimes mm. especially because he's shown no morals exactly you know and he's by all accounts made no attempt to sort of like steps towards like reconciliation or rehabilitation and things with like the family and stuff like that so it doesn't sound to me like he'd met any of the criteria um which hopefully gives family like the tiniest bit of comfort that you know he's nowhere near about being able to kind of start getting any of his freedoms back but yeah I just think that's desperately sad what the brother said that it almost does feel like there was a monetary value put on his sister's life and mm. that must just be so heart-wrenching particularly when you know they thought she was out there you know improving her life and making like amazing memories and seeing the world etc for it to yeah have been such a drastically different reality must be really hard to live with. And I can't imagine how you ever like regain the confidence to, to go out and, and trust in people and and new things Mm. after something like that happens to your family. Mm, I know. I agree. It's, it's truly devastating and really awful case. So that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of infraction. Bye. Bye.